What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey everybody, welcome to Movie Crush, Friday Casey Filmmaker Series Edition. Welcome Casey. Thank you. Glad to be back. Uh, so we have sort of just decided to do whatever we want to do now. <laughs> uh, kind of loosely agreeing to bounce around between slightly more well-known films and maybe a little more like, hey, let's turn you on to something new films. Yeah. So this would be... Sort of in the middle. <laughs> kind of in the middle, yeah. Well-known director, Hollywood movie, uh-huh. but... Made in the independent style, of course. Yeah, underseen still. Yeah, and underseen. So, you know, Soderbergh has much better, much more widely seen films than this one, but Mm -hmm. this is one of his best, I think. Yeah, so we're talking about The Limey today, the great, great Steven Soderbergh film from 1999, uh, written by Lem Dobbs. Uh, I know that you, you're going to have a lot of good information about the director's commentary because weren't they both yeah. in there? Yes. Yeah, they're both in there and it's uh, extremely contentious in like a, you know, friendly way. I didn't get you to can, listen to it. but You can tell you can tell they both like each other. But at the same time, yeah, it's it's like the perfect crystallization of like the screenwriter's dilemma, you know, in Hollywood. Of, which is? Which is in, in the case of this film, this, this screenplay, this was something that Dobbs had worked on for a very long time. Mm-hmm. He had, I think he'd, the first draft he'd written when he was like 19 years old. Oh, wow. And by the time they're making this, he's already kind of like a industry veteran. And uh-huh. he'd already worked with Soderbergh on a film before this called Kafka. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so it, it, it's kind of that thing of he put a lot of his own life and, you know, thoughts on things into this. And everything was kind of there for a reason. Mm-hmm. These A lot of the, the side characters and the backstories and so on yeah. were all kind of, you know, headed towards something. Uh-huh. And Soderbergh took that and cut it way, way back and made a much more streamlined, minimalist kind of film Yeah, from that raw material. And it's just kind of, it's what happens to every screenwriter, more or less, in, sure. in, in filmmaking, is that whatever your reasons for the thing that you wrote, it's mm-hmm. ultimately, in the end of the day, it's raw material for somebody else to come and kind of make it 
you know, make you it gotta, their own thing. You got to get right with that. Yeah. If you're going to yeah. write movies, unless yeah. you're going to direct them, you got to hand over your baby and watch them like cut it to pieces. And so right at the top. That's gross. Dobbs, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right at the top, Dobbs talks about, you know, Robert Town still complains about what Polanski did to Chinatown. And, <laughs> Come on. Um, Alan Rogrier still complains about what Alan Renee did with Last Year at Marion Bad and so on. So right. like even these things that we think of as like perfect films. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a screenwriter somewhere going, man, would've, I wish they kept that scene. Would have been better. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, screenwriters. I love it because I am one, uh, technically. Uh, so this is a neo-noir film, uh, I guess you could call it, um, sort of a crime film, a revenge film. Absolutely, yeah. Um, all of those things are some of my favorite things in movies. Yeah. And uh, s- retribution, someone getting their just desserts is something that has always been a turn on for me in a film. It's very, very cinematic, very cathartic. Yeah. You know, you set up the villain and then, you know, in the end, they're yeah. going to get their just desserts. And yeah. And, and this film opens with such a bang with um, and not a bang in a traditional sense, like, like some a big, whisper. Yeah, yeah. Like action sequence. Yeah. But, you know, Terrence Stamp saying, you know, tell me about Jenny. And just the sounds of the waves crashing on the beach. Yeah. And, but you and don't know completely what that is yet. black screen. And, uh-huh. Yeah. It's a real, it's a great kind of cold open. And like you said, you, it, you're, it's, it's very disorienting. You don't know who's talking uh-huh. or where they are, or what's happening, yeah. who, who he's speaking to. Um, and, he, and then, you know, the first thing you see is him walk straight into frame yeah. with the title card next to him. Uh, and it's just such a great film entrance. That that song, the Who song, The Seeker. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. kicks right in. Yeah. Uh, little tidbit, Terrence Stamp's brother was the Who's manager. Yeah, I know. It's funny. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's great too because that that song has like a I don't know what you'd call it in musical terms, but it's like a break where you think the song's over, they go bam, yeah, and yeah. there's like a bar of silence, uh-huh. and then it dun 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 kicks in again. <laughs> so good. And but the way the film uses it, it hits that break, and then it just it never comes up again. Yeah. And it it, it it's like your first kind of hint if you know that song well that like this film's gonna kind of yeah do do a little something different it's gonna zig when you expect it to zag yeah and since we're on music i know we're not uh even in the film at the point where the score comes in i do want to shout out uh i'm trying to shout out more of the you know uh, below well i guess below the line below the line <laughs> yeah. or uh, yeah. composers above the line sure sure or are they below the line i don't even know oh no i mean is. cliff martinez very much above the line in my yeah, view. yeah so he is uh the score is so effective in this film um very sp- bare mm-hmm. and sparse and it's sort of there's this minor key off key thing it does that's very unsettling yeah and i didn't know who he was but he you know he goes all the way back to sex lies and videotape oh yeah with soderbergh he goes back to the red hot chili peppers in fact oh really yeah oh wait yeah that's the cliff from the red hot chili peppers yeah yeah oh no shit yeah yeah um did not know that and i don't know do you know what he played in red hot was he like a I don't know. Was, he wouldn't be based because that'd be Flea. Yeah. Unless he's in an earlier incarnation I, I, or something. Believe it or not, I read that. I went through my rock bio phase and I uh, read that uh, Anthony Kiedis book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think Cliff might have been one of the first guitar players. Okay. Because they famously just cycled through a bunch right, of guitar players right. over the years. So I don't think he's with the band anymore, but I think he... No, no, no. You know, he left he, early He transitioned on. into becoming more of like a film composer. Yeah. And yeah, he's worked with Soderbergh a lot and, and he's responsible for some of my favorite scores in film. Yeah, and the other person I want to shout out, and we're going to talk a lot about the editing in this film. Oh, yeah. Uh, the great Sarah Flack. Yes. Um, she's unbelievable. And um, one of maybe 
easily top five edited uh, films yes. for me, editing yeah. job. And a frequent collaborator with Sofia Coppola, too. Yeah, so she did Kafka, Schizophilus, The Limey, and Full Frontal with um, with Soderbergh. And then, obviously, Lost in Translation, Marie Antoinette. Everything after somewhere. From, from Lost in Translation onward. Yeah, yeah, The Beguiled. And then another couple of great movies, Dan in Real Life, Away We Go. Um, she, you know, she's known for working with independent films mainly. Yeah, yeah. But the editing in this movie just blows me away every time I see it. It's, yeah, I mean, the, it, this film wouldn't work without, you know, that very, very important contribution. And um, there, Soderbergh tells a story about, you know, the screenplay was written in a more linear fashion uh-huh. and the first cut of the movie was more linear. Oh, interesting. And he said they had the screening and it was like, it was just dead, you know? Really? Were, it didn't have like any of what, we energy. think of as the film now. Uh-huh. And so even though he had already taken steps during the shooting uh-huh. to film some of the dialogue scenes in multiple locations yeah. and kind of cut around there, they had done some of that I in wonder, that first cut. Okay, I wondered about that. Yeah. Because I it was figured... Like reshoots the, or something. Yeah, no, I just figured the only way to do that was to know you're going to jump cut around yeah. and then just shoot stuff in multiple places right. so you had that freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it was, you know, Soderbergh had already done this a little bit in Out of Sight, mm-hmm. which he had done just prior to this. So there's the the kind of the love scene between George Clooney and yeah. um, Jennifer, Jennifer Lopez, Lopez and it, it, which is itself kind of modeled after another famous sequence in a Nicholas Rogue film, Don't Look Now, right. um, where basically it's a couple having sex, but you're you're intercutting that with them, like getting dressed afterwards. Yeah, and, yeah. And sort of you're, you're jumping all around in time. So effective. And it's kind of like, it's sort of... Yeah, it's it's more like the memory of that event than like a straightforward depiction of it mm-hmm. and just kind of puts you in this interior, thoughtful, pensive, yeah. contemplative kind of kind of mindset. And it removes the film from like the present tense and it becomes this thing mm-hmm. that is kind of like, you know, woven together from the past and the present and maybe the future. Yeah, and what it allows too is for you to make a really tight 94-minute movie yeah. and not feel like you're missing out on anything. Because he can do so much with just uh, sitting on a shot of yeah. somebody thinking, like Terrence Stamp on that airplane. Yeah. And you're just watching the light from the window move across his face oh, and so his eyes in the distance. Uh-huh. And I mean, it's it's sort of, it, it harkens back to this kind of uh, Soviet film theorist, Lev Kuleshov, mm-hmm. who had the famous Kuleshov effect, which is, you know, the example he gives, if you show like a picture of a boy and he's just kind of got a neutral expression mm-hmm. and then you show a bowl of soup you think, oh, that boy's hungry. Mm. But if you show like a casket, you know, oh, he's very sad. He's like yeah. in mourning or, you know, so so it's like the thing that you cut to, that you intercut with right. this shot of the actor, that's what kind of creates the meaning. Yeah, yeah. And the actual shot of the actor thinking is is very open-ended and could kind of be anything. Yeah. So, so you know, Soderbergh has these shots of Terrence Stamp where he's just kind of by himself. Contemplative, yeah. Contemplative. And yeah, you can you can use that for so many different purposes. So that yeah. that gave them a great amount of flexibility in the edit to really create those moments of thought whenever you know it seemed like a good idea. Yeah, I bet this edit was um, fun and also a slog for yes. for a ninety four minute film. Yeah, so you know, so they had that initial screening. Soderbergh was like, "Oh, we're in big trouble. We gotta like really, really." reconceive this whole thing yeah and and so apparently he went away came back the next day with all these notes and Mm -hmm. you know and just said basically like we're going to take the whole thing apart and build it again wow and sarah flack was obviously up for the challenge and um like i said he had already shot some of the sequences of the film in multiple locations Uh so they could intercut that stuff yeah um 
But basically Soderbergh said, like, let's take that as our model and make the whole film like that. Right. And luckily he had already had enough footage of, you know, the thinking shots and so on. Yeah. That that really works. Yeah, that that he could use all that. And there were even other images, like, for instance, Terry Valentine on the beach on his back with his hands raised up. Uh Uh-huh. You don't even know who that is when you first see it in the film. Yeah. But it is it is it's just an image that foreshadows what's to come, that there's mm-hmm. a story about vengeance and it's a story about somebody's going to get kind of what's yeah. coming to them. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, and so they just, they started. And Soderbergh says during during that process, like he would, he would push it too far uh-huh. and they would screen it for some people. They didn't do traditional test screenings. Right. They, he only screened it for like friends of his, people in the industry, uh-huh. people whose opinion he really trusted. Right. And also who had a close enough relation to him that they could be brutally honest if mm-hmm. something wasn't working. And, um, and yeah, they, they just kind of had this back and forth about how do we make this, you know, what's the right balance between too yeah. nonlinear and right. not nonlinear enough? Because you got to follow that story. Yeah. Uh, it can't be at the expense of that story. Um, so, you know, you've got all the jump cutting, which I love. And then another great device, which is another one of my favorite editing devices, is the dialogue wraps. Yes. Where um, sometimes it's dialogue from the previous scene wrapping to the next right. or, or previously. And then sometimes it's stuff completely from different scenes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really, really effective. Yeah, just just bounce around in time. And Soderbergh says that for him, like the reason it works on this film is that it is a fairly basic skeleton of a story. Really basic. Yeah. Guy, so, guy comes to America to kill a guy. Exactly. And, you know, there's a little bit of backstory about him and his daughter and so on. Uh-huh. But it's very, very straightforward in that way. And so because the the kind of the backbone is so straightforward. Yeah. That's what gives him the flexibility to be right. able to jump around in time and do all this kind of thoughtful stuff because mm-hmm. if you combine that with a more complicated plot, yeah, you're screwed. You're in a real difficult, you know, yeah. only for diehards kind of territory. Yeah. Whereas with this, you know, an audience is more willing to go along with it because they can still keep track of like what that main story beats are. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and the one thing uh we also should mention so people know what we're talking about uh, if you either haven't seen the film before, if you saw it and didn't fully understand what was going on, um, Soderbergh was sort of the first person to de-age an actor, but not yeah. dig- not digitally. Yes. He uh, very smartly um, was able to finagle Warner Brothers into giving him full rights to the 1967 Ken Loach film, Poor Cow. Poor Cow, yeah. When Terrence Stamp was a young man. Yes. And used this as flashback. And I remember seeing this in the theater and my mind being blown yeah. when that shit came on screen yeah. because I was it was so effective and I was like why has no one ever done that before I know and and so Soderbergh on the on the commentary Soderbergh and Dobbs say that they were trying to figure out if anybody had done this before I had never seen it there's a handful of things like there's a, a John Wayne film called The Shootist Oh, I know where, that movie. Yeah, where that, they that was use, his last film. Yeah, where they use you know clips of John Wayne playing like a cowboy uh, earlier they? in his life and okay. so on, but. It's a much more like limited kind of deployment of that. You know, it's, yeah, I mean, it's this, like a few clips at the beginning of the movie and that's kind of it. Yeah, this serves really um, the plot in a lot of ways to show this flashback of him as a young man, as a petty criminal. Yeah. And uh, intercut with uh, some of that stuff was new, right? The daughter peeking in, or was I that all so. from the film? Actually, I started to watch Poor Cow. I, I didn't make it through the whole thing. I watched like the first half hour or so just to uh-huh. kind of get a feel for it. And I meant to meant to finish it. Um, I will at some point. But uh, yeah, the 
One thing that I did notice that they did to the footage from Poor Cow is they they put like a heavy sepia tone over it. I think that was probably to match sure. other stuff, right? Yeah, to match other stuff that they shot mm-hmm. in addition, like the daughter looking and yeah. so on. And uh, and also just to, I think to probably just for the audience to make it a little less jarring. Yeah. Because Poor Cow, as it is actually like filmed and released – is a very, like, 60s, bold, primary color kind of vibe. And so um, it looks beautiful. It's probably weird to see it that way. Yeah, yeah. It's like, very strange. Real way. <laughs> like Like watching, because, for instance, I got to the scene where where Terrence Stamp is playing that Donovan song, Colors, yeah. and, which is, like, the ending of this film, The Limey. And, um, Singing about freedom. Yeah, and it's it's a very different feeling in that film. Yeah. Um, it's more of, like, a, it, it doesn't have as much of, like, a... Um, a melancholy feeling to it the way it does in the limey because you yeah. know what what happened afterwards. But in that film, yeah, it's just like a very beautiful kind of open moment. Yeah. And um, with the bright colors and everything, it's like it's a much cheerier kind of uh, yeah. scene. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting how we never um, fully get to know Jenny. Yeah. Like he doles out just enough and it's very sparse right. in the flashbacks. He doesn't overdo it. This could have been... In someone else's hands, uh, thirty minutes longer. Sure, and I think maybe suffered for it. Yeah, could have could have had like actual dialogue scenes with that actress and yeah. kind of a flash forward, flashback, and um, yeah, I don't, you I don't didn't think, need it. Yeah, you don't need it, and and it's almost it would be working against the the kind of the theme of the film of memory, you know, of, of right. memory and fragments of memory and the and, subjective way we remember things, and to yeah. to show a full scene play out like that, it would kind of be. Well, whose perspective are we in? Because, you know, Dave would not have been around uh-huh. for this, you yeah. know, if it's his daughter interacting with like Terry Valentine or something. Um, so, he wasn't around for a lot of it, though, because he has that one great right. line about, you know, I watched to grow up in increments. In increments, yeah. So sad. Between like stints in prison. Well, yeah. I mean, and that's really hit me more than ever. Um, I mean, I've seen this movie a bunch of times. Uh, hit me more than ever this morning when yeah, I watched yeah, it, yeah. by the way. Uh about what this movie really is about, and it's about a father who failed his daughter right um repeatedly and uh is is trying to make up for it in a way by killing the man who he feels like killed her, which he did yeah, which he did but but what he comes to understand is that even though Terry Valentine was the one who literally killed her, that he as a father bears a great deal of responsibility for yeah. why she was in that predicament to begin with. And, and yeah. you know, the the game about she's going to call the cops and all that. That whole thing yeah. mirrored his exact experience with her. Yeah. That was such a, I mean, I love that scene. That's um, such an emotional scene. It kind of comes out of nowhere. and It like, really, really got you. me today. Yeah, like, same. I was in the my living room this morning just like almost crying. Yeah. Well, the, the score is actually very <sighs> so like uh, emotional in that scene. Yeah. And it's this it's a this, gut punch. It's like an epiphany that he has. You know, he, he very quickly like his whole – the whole thing just clicks into focus and he understands yeah. like right away that – I have a lot more of this responsibility that I have to accept. Yeah. And for me to just, you know, take the life of this other guy is not really what it's about, you know, for yeah. him anymore. Because he's almost taking – would have been taking revenge on his, on himself. Yeah, exactly. In some ways. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk more about that right. later. But um, let's talk about Terry Stamp for a minute. Yeah. Um, I saw that this was written with Michael Caine in mind. Right. Which would have been fucking great. Oh, I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> but I can't imagine like – from the moment Terrence Stamp shows up, you get a sense as a as a viewer that like nothing is going to fucking stop this guy. Right. He is going to do what he sets out to do. You never see him 
He doesn't change his clothes, I don't think. <laughs> no. He's no. a very simple man yes. with simple needs. You get the feeling. Yeah. And uh, it really comes in full focus with that first warehouse confrontation. Yeah. You 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 just get the sense that he's like this unmovable force. And yeah. Nothing, yeah, like you said, nothing's going to stop him, deter him. He is just this single-minded, like, strong, you know, vengeful person. Yeah, but as this old guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there's really, a, it's a bit of a magic trick that he comes across as... Threatening or so dangerous. Threatening. The um, way he can walk into that warehouse with oh my God. all the all the hoodlums like hanging yeah. around and and take a beating. Yeah. And like And yet you still are never really in doubt that he's yeah. gonna come out on top of those of all dumb that. shits didn't check for another guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he just goes in there and wastes them. And you know, there's so much that happens off screen in this movie. Uh and I'm always a big fan of that, especially yeah. when it's violence. Uh, this implied violence. All you hear is the gunshots yeah. and that dude hauling ass out of there. That's a that's a funny moment in the commentary because it was written like that in the screenplay that the camera would stay outside. Oh, really? That he would go back in and you would just see the the hear the gunshots basically. Oh, cool. And the one guy running out. And so on the commentary, Lim Dobbs complains, especially about a reviewer in Variety that talks about the bravura direction of Steven Soderbergh in the scene. Yeah. He's like, it was in the screenplay, you know, like uh, it's very, very funny. Tell him I'm fucking coming. Yeah, with the blood on his face and everything. God damn, dude. Yeah, that's that that scene too. Um, you can definitely see kind of the the origin of the style that he would later deploy quite a lot in a film like Traffic. Yeah, where he's really not controlling the lighting. It's all kind of available light. It's this uh-huh. really green, like fluorescent. Yeah. Un- unflattering light yeah. and the windows when when you can see outside the warehouse are just completely gone just oh, like blinding out. blinding yeah. white light um ed lockman the the cinematographer um i believe comes from from more of like a documentary background and mm-hmm. so he had that that tool where he could kind of um you know let flares go let blown out windows go yeah. and and really just concentrate on like the 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 feeling of the moment mm-hmm. and the immediacy of it all, right? Um, and not get too like caught up in in trying to have it quote unquote perfect because yeah. it's the imperfection that gives the scene its energy, gives it that that edge of danger. Yeah, like you're kind of you're in new territory and you, you don't know exactly how it's all going to turn out. It yeah. has like a just like a, a little bit of an edge or a danger to it. Yeah, and it's it's very stylistic at times. Like it it kind of alternates between partially because of the locations and that was another thing I wanted to mention. These these this gorgeous house on the cliff. Yeah. And then this gorgeous place in Big Sur. Yeah. Set against like the worst shit happening, this this violence going on. And yeah, the Pacific Coast Highway and Yeah, that all juxtaposition that. is really interesting to me, but you've got these really beautiful shots. But then it's so stylish at other times, either in flash those flashbacks where, like the light leaks, the kind of the 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 yeah the light those, those vertical bl- bands and so and, on, and yeah. like literally using like a flashlight on these actors' faces, yeah, yeah, which is what they had to have been doing, right, right, right. Which is, um, I like that kind of style when it's um when it doesn't feel like style for style's sake, right? Yeah, it's got a real purpose. It, it has the sense of because these are memories that. Terrence Stamp can't literally have. Yeah. There's something that he's imagining that he's putting together in his head mm-hmm. from what he knows about Valentine, what he knows about his daughter. Right. And how he imagines these things might have gone down. Yeah. So and 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 obviously it's they're very charged memories because yeah. it's his daughter being murdered, essentially. Uh-huh. And so yeah, he 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 films them in such a way that 
they stand out from the rest of the film, yeah. not in a jarring way, just in a in a kind of an intensity way. Yeah, I think the key is it's they're so brief. Um, yeah, they, he does these quick little flashes. Yeah, yeah, very quick. I mean, they're almost. I mean, technically they're flashbacks, but when you think flashback, back you think of a scene, right? Right. And it's not a scene. They're just these little brief moments, just little fragments. Yeah, so effective. Yeah. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Um, so it's at this point that we meet, uh, finally meet Terry, Peter Fonda, who's so good. And, um, it's interesting because he, throughout the film, he, he just conveys this Peter Fonda, happy go lucky kind of sixties, absolutely hip, you know, former hippie vibe. Yeah. Even when on the way up to Big Sur, when this guy's coming after him to kill him and he's just sort of joking around, (laughs) like he's like, nothing is ever, he's. Even under threat, he's never taking it that seriously. He's just in denial, and he's he's lived such a charm life that he, he kind of feels invincible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's there's that great scene where um, uh, Barry Newman, who's like his security consultant or whatever. Oh, man. Um, so great. He says, how do you keep getting so lucky, Terry? He goes, I learned to skate when I was a little boy. <laughs> yeah, and, and then exits his frame right then. Yeah, so and apparently cool. that's uh, that was a line that, that Peter Fonda ad-libbed, and it's something that he oh. says just – in real in life, life, anyway, yeah, it's like a fondaism. Yeah, R.I.P. Man, I know he died like less than a month ago. I know, and um, I was I was like surprised when it happened because in my mind he wasn't that old, mm-hmm. but in my mind he was kind of frozen at the age he was in this film, right? You know, and like I had to is... realize this is a film from twenty years ago. Yeah, you know? so fucking twenty years. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. He looks a lot like his dad in this movie. He too. does. He does. And I, you know, maybe this is a good time to talk about the casting in general of of the kind of the symbolic weight of a lot of this casting that you have mm-hmm. Peter Fonda who we think of maybe as like the guy in Easy Rider and this icon of 
60s or 70s yeah, the new cinema, the uh-huh. counterculture, the hippie movement. Um, yeah, just this icon of the 60s. Terrence Stamp in his own way uh-huh. is is that as well, yep. although not not as much of a pop culture icon yeah. necessarily, but he's in a lot of great um, 60s films. Sure. And um, I think in particular of his, his role in a, a Pasolini film called uh, Theorem, Teorama, mm-hmm. where he's this young, handsome, mysterious figure yeah. who comes into the life of this kind of bourgeois family and one by one starts sleeping with all of them and, and throws the entire thing into chaos. Yeah. And, um, yeah, he, he, um, he definitely carries, carries that energy of the sixties. Then you have, um, you have like Leslie Ann Warren. So great to see her. Who I, I was less familiar with, but apparently kind of a fixture of like seventies TV films especially and yeah uh, a lot of tv shows as well i mean she was miss scarlet and clue yeah one of the great yeah. movies and uh i have to see that one and um then you also have like the hitman the older hitman of the two not nicky cat but nicky cat this so other funny. guy this other guy joe <laughs> joe delisandro uh-huh. who is in uh many of uh, andy warhol's oh, yeah. features He's the warhol guy. yeah and uh-huh. paul morrissey as well uh, who you know worked with warhol so you have these kind of people that are that are like You're symbols. forgetting somebody yeah, who am I forgetting? Louis G. Oh, of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> if I was being honest, dude, and making a real list of my favorite actors oh, yeah. of all time, oh, yeah. Louis Guzman would be like top 20. Absolutely. I love Absolutely. him in every single fucking thing he does. Yeah. I feel like I don't see enough of him, you know? He's, but I think oh, of God, like, he's so good. you know, Boogie Nights or Carlito's Way. Yeah, or... which I just did Boogie Nights yesterday uh, for the show. Yeah. So it was great seeing yeah. that again. And yes. he's... He's like peak Luigi in oh, that man. movie. <laughs> he's he's the best. Jack, when are you gonna put me in one of your movies? Talk about <laughs> talk about a commentary track. There's a there's a commentary track. There's two commentary tracks on Boogie Nights. And in the second one, it's like a casting crew. So it's oh, Paul geez. Thomas Anderson talking to like all the cast members. Uh-huh. And even Bert? No. He didn't. No, he Bert, didn't Bert was not involved. No, no. <laughs> of course. But um but he he kind of Every time there's a Louis Guzman scene, uh-huh. he's like, do you think Louis Guzman was stoned for this? And do you think you burned one before this take? Oh, no way. And they're all just like, yeah, I think he did. Or no, no, I don't think he did on this one. I uh, like knowing that. Yeah, That's yeah. great. He's so good in this too because he's, I mean, besides just the fact that I'm in love with Louis Guzman, he's got everything to lose. Yeah, yeah. And he still wants to help this guy right. because of this girl in his acting class. This, yeah, there's something very like noble and yeah. grounded about him. I think him and, and Leslie Ann Warren, their their two characters really ground the film. Yeah. Because they're more like everyday working people in, in Hollywood and they're the kind of people that they never became like big stars or whatever. Um they're just normal kind of middle class people living their life. Leslie Ann Warren is still involved a little bit in show business. Yeah. She seems to be like working on like a TV series or something. Yeah, pretty low level. Yeah, but but they're both just kind of they're out there doing their thing, you know, yeah. and they're 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 living it one day at a time, and um, that they give such great contrast to, you know, the Peter Fonda, mm-hmm. like the kind of like guy who cashed in on yeah. all the '60s kind of zeitgeist, or or somebody like uh, Wilson who is just sort of like this artifact who's almost been frozen in amber, yeah. and like you know he's now he's come back. He doesn't and, fit into the modern world. Yeah, certainly yeah. not in L.A. Exactly. It's it also has that stranger in a strange land vibe. Fish which out I of water love. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, there's so many great lines in it, but since we were on uh, Louis G. and Leslie Ann Warren, there's that great exchange um, toward the end when they get out of the car and they're sort of walking by themselves and stamps up ahead. And he goes, "You ever even understand half the shit this guy's saying?" She says, no, but I know what he means. Yes, yeah. Such a great line. It's a great, yeah, classic line. I love the line that um, 
Guzman has when they're at Valentine's. The pool? Yeah, the pool. And, <laughs> and he points out, he kind of gestures out towards the smog. He's like, you know, you could see the sea out there if you could see it. One of my favorites. Amazing. Well, and uh, it kind of overshadows right before that. He also has a funny line. Yeah. Terrence James says, what are we fucking standing on? Yeah. And he just goes, a truss. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, There's something about like the simplicity of that exchange. Oh yeah, Soderbergh. Like if you if you look at his Twitter account, he's always quoting lines from movies to the extent that he posts because he doesn't post all that often. But, oh really? But he, you can tell he's a real like admirer of like the great pithy like single line from yeah. a screenplay that sure. just encapsulates so much and uh-huh. is infinitely quotable. I feel like the Limey is one of those screenplays that has like dozens of those lines. It it does. And I never, I don't think I really realized how many lines it had. And I found myself, because I don't think the limey is like, oh, all the great lines from that right. film, like yeah. you do others. Yeah. But there are so many I have written down here. Um, when when uh, he first meets Leslie Ann Warren and she's like, she told me she didn't have a father. And like, he fully owns it. He never makes any excuses. Right. And he says, how are you going to keep her down on the farm once she's seen L.A.? Yeah. Such a good line. It makes me think of that line from um, uh, Big Lebowski. It's like, how are you going to keep her on a farm when she's seen Carl Hungus, you know? Oh, dude, I bet you yeah. they ganked from this thing, yeah. huh? Yeah, well, I'm maybe. trying to think because Lebowski came out around the same time, right? 99, 2000, something like that. Oh, maybe so. Even, maybe. So, I don't know. They might they might both be kind of referencing some prior saying, like, how are you going to keep him on a farm when yeah. XYZ? No, that's true. Yeah. Um, and then there's the other line. It's just so cutting. And I love a line that, like, just a couple of words can just, like, slice like, right through you. But when she's talking about Jenny, um, he says embarrassed. She goes, not embarrassed. He goes, ashamed. And she says, not ashamed, disappointed. Which is the worst of all. <sighs> the worst of all. It's like when your parents say, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. Oh, God it's like, damn, oh, dude. man, I wish you were angry. <laughs> <laughs> just be mad just at me. Just be off. Yeah, that's fine. You'll get over so it. So much easier. Yeah. Um, and then, actually, in that same very scene... Uh, when she goes, so what's you know what's the idea here? You and Terry Valentine at twenty paces, and he's like, you know, sounds about right or whatever. <laughs> right. She goes, oh, you fucking guys and your dicks, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that 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 perspective is you know it's God, in the film. And, such good writing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very self aware without being flashy. You know, it's just yeah. kind of like, come on, really? Like, this yeah. is what you're gonna do? You're gonna like come to America, yeah. big swinging dick, and just kind of like. But that's the plot. Like, fix it all there, and and sort that's sort of what I love about how he goes about it is there's no plan, there's no scene where he's like you know right here's what we're gonna yeah, do right like he's just like all right I'm gonna go to the party and kill him yeah and Louis Guzman is like no 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 get out of here yeah um although he god the fucking kills that guy the headbutt <laughs> and that's uh, that's the way they shot it is over so the great. shoulder yeah just, during a dialogue scene with uh peter fonda yeah, and, and Harry he just, newman he turns yeah. around and it had already happened and all yeah. you see is terrence stamp like straightening his jacket yeah yeah <laughs> and it's so so matter of fact and 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 just kind of oh, god the headbutt is a very kind of that seems like a british thing you know like like <laughs> yeah. kind of like a just like a rough kind of uh it's like a street know. move. Street move, exactly. It's not yeah. flashy. There's there's no guns or anything. It's just kind of like very simple and to the point. Well, speak, uh, speaking of Boogie Nights, though, that guy is, um, I don't know if you recognize his face. He's been in a gazillion movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one he kills, though. Oh, yeah. He was the guy in the donuts shop. Oh, yeah, totally it is. Pulls out that yes. fucking hand cannon. Yes, he starts the whole, <laughs> yeah. the whole massacre that goes down there. Yeah. And I looked him up. I was like, oh, I bet he's, you know. Those are the only two things I know him from, and he's yeah. been in like a hundred movies. A million movies. things. He's yeah. got one of those one of those faces. That's that kinda, pretty great. Yeah. Um, and then I also loved all the stuff between 
Peter Fonda and his young girlfriend um, because it just shows him as so carefree and like, like I'm the coolest fucking guy in the world. Like when she's talking about the 60s. Yeah. And he has that great line. He's like, it was really just 66 and the first part of 67. That's all there was. That's it. Yeah. That's that's all there was. You know, the rest of it's just kind of whatever. Yeah. I mean, there's so much hubris in that, you know. There's, it's just kind of like he's somebody, I mean, it, it's like the perfect kind of boomer, I don't know, thing where you're just waxing rhapsodic about. I know. They thought so much of bygone themselves. Bygone era and, you know, like the way he's almost like a mystic about it or something. Yeah, you know? when she says, she's talking about the Jefferson Airplane poster. Yeah. She goes, I like those colors. And he goes, we all did. <laughs> <laughs> it's like such an obnoxious fucking thing to say. She says something like, you've got that same poster in your office or something. He's yeah. like, no, they're different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and later on when she says, you know, you've told me the story before. Yeah. Like that's such a interesting thing to put in a script. Yeah. Uh, because it says a lot about this guy who clearly just fucking tells the same sh- the stories tour, yeah. over he's and over. He's kind of trading on, yes. again, he's, he's been rehashing the same yep. two, three-year period, you know, wrote it all the way to the bank kind of thing yeah. for, for his whole life. Absolutely. Uh, I want to talk about the um, the introduction of his character because it's done so so amazingly well. It's mm-hmm. a scene with Adhara, the, you know, the young girlfriend, yeah. and, and him at the pool. And there's almost like a trailer for his character uh-huh. that plays out with this Holly song, King Midas in Reverse, yeah. playing, Great where song. you actually see at one point, you're seeing all these flashes forward of like uh, Valentine at his cabin later in the film, or Valentine yeah. driving down the Pacific Coast Highway later in the film, or even a shot of a billboard w- for American Express with Peter Fonda, yeah. you know? And so- Remember since 64 or yeah, whatever? Yeah, <laughs> and you have this, you have this blend of- Peter Fonda's real life persona mm-hmm. and the and the character and his status is kind of like the symbol of the 1960s counterculture. Yeah. And it all just blends together in this really, really cool way of introducing his character. And then as soon as it's kind of out of that trailer part, there's a very telling line where, you know, she comes out of the pool mm-hmm. and he's like, God, you're beautiful. He says, you know, I told your parents, you know, when they were expecting you or something, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can't go wrong with like uh, the name of a constellation. Right. And that's why they named her Adhara, and now he's dating her. You know, he knew her parents before oh, she was born. I did not pick up on that. And it's it's a total— I remember him commenting about the name, but I yeah. did not pick up he on that. He was friends with her. So it's, it's this classic, and like— And now she's 20, yeah, so she's fair game. Exactly, exactly. Wow. So you just get in that tiny little, you know, line of dialogue, you know so much about his character and that yeah. he's kind of forever chasing youth and, uh-huh. and wants to remain— as he was maybe when he was in his 20s, that he's trying to recapture that or just keep wow. it going. Yeah. Man, I've never noticed that in all the times I've seen this movie. And you kind of, you you know, it's because he's a very wealthy guy and he's a very powerful, influential guy. And yeah. so he's one of those people that, you know, can have this like never ending parade of, you know, young, beautiful women in his life. Yeah. And there's so many, I mean, that just speaks to this film. There's so many little nuggets. Um, it's a movie that you really like, if you pay attention, they're all over the place. Yeah. You know, it's not, I mean, it's a brilliant movie. It's not just this sort of in-between movie that he made after Out of Sight and before uh, Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of people might consider it that, that yeah, aren't too yeah. familiar with it. Right, like, a, like kind of like a, a minor note or something. But yeah, it's no, not, no, it's, it's not at all. And yeah, like you were saying, like the the dialogue, it's, it's a screenplay that has obviously been worked over and thought about for, for a very long time. Yeah. There's all these layers and all this depth to it, even though... It is like a fairly straightforward story. Nothing is in there just by chance. Like yeah. it's all been kind of hashed out for a really long time by yeah, yeah. the screenwriter. 
um, the the post pool party chase down the mountain is so great, yeah. and it really speaks um, to the sort of realistic, sloppy nature of how he did a lot of this stuff. Right, none of it is slick. That yeah. chase down the mountain, and then I don't. You've probably not driven in the Hollywood Hills no. and places like that, but there are these crazy switchbacks and you know uh, tight turns where like. You know, you you got to drive really slow. You yeah. can't drive fast down yeah. these things. Yeah. And that one part where he's, um, what, what's the bodyguard's name? The head dude. I'm trying to think, Newman. It's not Newman. It's Barry Newman is the actor because he's in Vanishing Bill? Point. Yeah, it might be Bill. I think his first name's Bill, yeah. but they call him by his last name. Whatever it is. Yeah. But he, you know, wheels around the corner and he can barely even make that turn. Right. And it's not like a slick stunt move. It's really real. Yeah. And how that, it just plays out so sloppy. And then it hit me that like these are two like seniors going yeah. at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he didn't cast some young and all the bodyguards, they're not like these sort of stereotypical trope tattooed like young strong men. Right. They're all these sort of old guys with beer guts yeah. that you know fucking killed dudes. It's funny, yeah. Um when Adhara has that line of Peter Final, like who's that scary guy in the house? Yeah. But she's talking about the guy that he headbutts and throws over the Yeah. Team. I mean to me he's not scary. that scary, yeah. But but maybe he just has a certain vibe about him like he means business or something that you she know picked what? up on. I'm just realizing where else I saw that guy. It was in Lebowski. Oh yeah. He's on the bowling team. Right, right, I right. I think right. he's one of uh, John Turturro's okay. bowling partners. Totally. <laughs> yeah, I can kind of see him like polishing yeah, the polish. Ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> With like his gut hanging out. I'm telling you, man, yeah. he's he's everywhere. That's so good. Maybe he might be the guy that does the little dance after he does the strike or That's something. That's totally yeah, the guy. Yeah. He does the little hippie shake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> little shimmy. Um, so, yeah, that, that chase downhill was just so brutal. And and Terrence Stamp, you know, grabs the wheel from the passenger seat yeah. and stomps on the gas yes. to reverse into the like, – Back knocking, into the car and knock it off the cliff. So badass. Yeah. And that, again, like the, the guy who's playing the security consultant – Barry Newman, he's in this great 70s song called Vanishing Point. Yeah, Vanishing Point. That is, great. you know, kind of like a, a, a feature-length car chase, more or less. It's yeah. just him trying to get from point A to point B with the cops chasing him the whole time. Yeah. And again, that, that film, too, has like a little bit of a flashback structure because it starts with him kind of near the end of his route mm-hmm. where the police have this whole blockade set up. And he kind of just like guns it and is like going full speed. And then it cuts back to the beginning of the film. Oh, really? And then you, the whole film progresses. And then you realize at the end, like he's gotten back. The film is caught up with itself. And now oh. he's like about to, you're about to see how that ends. You I know? saw it, but it's been a long time. Yeah. I should revisit that one. Huh? It's a good one. It's, um, you know, not like a classic or anything, but just some really amazing driving yeah. sequences and stunts and crazy jumps and yeah. just, you know, 70s muscle cars yeah. and all that good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> So it's right here. It's literally the halfway. I paused it um, at 45 minutes of a, like a 90-minute film that we learn a little bit about his backstory. Right. Because uh, previous to this, we just know that Terrence Stamp has shown up and an uh, angry father out for retribution. But then we learned he's was in prison. Yeah. Career criminal. Yeah. Um, obviously a bad dude. And uh, <laughs> there's that great line from uh, – from Bill, and he's like, what is England anyway? Like this rinky-dink country where the cops don't even carry guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love that they're like bagging on England. Yeah. And and then kind of bagging on the U.S. too, because where does he go to buy a gun? He's like at a school playground, you know. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's buying guns under the table from these kids who have like backpacks. And, yeah, a little comment there yeah, for sure. Yeah, but the, the culture difference and, and him sort of just, you know, again, Wilson being like a fish out of water in this – in this country, you yeah. know, where it's where it's very easy to get a gun and yeah. um 
yeah, where it's, where it's all a little bit chaotic and anarchic. Yeah. Even in the end, that exchange on the plane, you know, when he wants to go home, like you can tell he didn't want to be here for right. a second longer than right. he has to be. Yes. Yeah. Like this is a guy who loathes L.A. Yeah. Not just because it killed his daughter, but like he just, yeah, he didn't want he to be there. He doesn't belong there. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't belong there. He doesn't want to spend any more time there than he absolutely has to. Yeah. yeah. And he doesn't. Yeah. Um. So then we meet Nikki Cat. This is when he enters the picture, which is interesting because uh, – you didn't really need this stuff, but right. th- there's something about introducing this third element, like this wild card thing, mm-hmm. that I think really spices up a film. Yeah, um, you could have cut all of this out and just made it even more streamlined, but there was something about this that really worked. Yeah, and um, I mean, Nikki Cat has some of the funniest lines in the film. I, I love him <laughs> whenever he's on screen in anything. Like I'm, I'm there. Um, uh, I don't know. I'd tell you to blow it out your ass, but my dick's in the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's a misogynist and he's racist. Yeah. And he, he's just the worst. He's the worst, but... But he's funny. <laughs> but he's very funny. He's very kind of just... His delivery is so good. Yeah. I don't know he if plays seen, a great asshole. If you've seen uh, that, that Linklater film, Suburbia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, based on the the Eric Bogosian, but... Um, Man, his He's character in that prick. is just like the ultimate asshole in in all of cinema. Like a certain kind of guy. He's probably like the nicest dude in the world. I bet he is. I bet he is. But yeah. man, I, I wish <laughs> I wish he were in more movies. I wish I could just you know have a whole Nikki Cat like anthology. You, that I mean, I could have seen if there are an extra ten minutes of him standing at the movie set. Yes. Just talking shit. Yeah, then yeah, I, yeah. I want to see that. Yeah, extra footage. <laughs> it's funny on the on the commentary. Um, Dobbs really gripes about the scene where they're talking about what's a sliding scale and how does a sliding scale. Work I love that the, part. You know, uh, Dobbs is like, "What is this Tarantino shit?" You know, like the, the, so the he kind didn't of like, even write that no, stuff, right? That was that was all kind of like Soderbergh says he wanted them. To, basically, he wanted a scene of like these kind of career criminals to just talk about money. Yeah, and, you know, and talk about like because there's this whole class dimension to the film that Soderbergh more or less downplays, although it's still there. Yeah. But there was a lot more in the in the screenplay and what Dobbs was kind of getting at as far as the the relative rank of these different criminals and how they fit into the larger kind of hierarchy. Sure. Uh-huh. You know, Wilson is is much more often he's referencing like his boss back in England. Yeah. So you get this idea that in the finished film, he comes off as more of a solitary figure, uh-huh. but in the screenplay, he's a little bit more like he has his place in the ranking as well, yeah. and he has people he has to answer to. And um, even even like the Nicky Cat and, um, you know, the the older um, hitman that he's like partners with, mm-hmm. they're actually supposed to be like, he's supposed to be like his uncle, oh, you know, really? his older uncle and their family. And huh. there's all this other stuff <laughs> where- Weird backstory you don't Yeah, need. where there was like a scene where maybe they like went home and like had dinner with some relatives and oh, stuff. Really? And again, Soderbergh is just kind of like, no, that's that's not what this movie's about, you know? Yeah, I mean, like I said, you could have cut it to begin with. You certainly right. didn't need that much yeah, stuff. Yeah, um, But it's funny you said the Tarantino thing. Like, I love that bit about the sliding scale. The difference is- Tarantino would have made that a six-minute scene. Exactly. And yeah. Soderbergh just stoles it out enough to just make it slightly off-kilter yeah, and indie-feeling. Kind of like kind of like break the 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 hypnotic spell of the film in a way mm-hmm. because it has been to that point very like floaty and dreamy and, yeah. you know, very subjective and, and, and uh, contemplative and so on. And when it goes to those scenes, it's much more in that kind of 90s it's indie alternative vibe. Yeah. And it's, but it's for like 20 seconds. Yeah. It goes by so quickly. But yeah. yeah. It just gives you, it gives like another kind of texture to the film. Uh, one of my other favorite lines during that first Nikki Cat pool scene 
is when I guess Delisandro is that his name? Yeah, Joe Delisandro. Joe Delisandro says, you know, making trouble for someone, which kind? And he has the forever kind. <laughs> yeah, I love Such that a line. Good line. Fun thing about Joe Delisandro. So one of the films that he was in, uh, there's a there's a shot of him bare chested with his head kind of bowed, mm-hmm. and a still from that film was taken to be the cover of the first Smiths album. Oh yeah, I know that. The album. kind of the purple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. So I I, I had never made that connection because. I mean, I, I knew, I you know, I know a decent amount about Warhol and the factory and so on, but Joe D'Alessandro being in this film mm-hmm. and his, that connection was was new to me. It's just yeah. very interesting how this film is full of people that have kind of a larger presence in yeah. the history of cinema, in in the culture and so on. It's But it's very, very subtly done. Uh-huh. You know, the way- It never I, feels like stunt casting or anything. Because like somebody like Tarantino, I think when he casts somebody like a Travolta, it's yeah. much more of a flashy like- I'm going to resurrect this guy's yeah, career kind of thing. Yeah, look what I'm doing here. Look and who I love I've that pulled too. out. But, you know, this is much more like below the radar, like very subtle. Yeah. And you kind of have to be somebody that is interested in the history of film and so on to pick up on the yeah. significance of some of these things. Yeah, absolutely. He doesn't underline it. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We should talk about the Bill Duke scene. One of my favorite scenes in any movie. Amazing. When Terrence Stamp comes in and goes full limey on him. <laughs> yeah. And I still say this line to people, Bill Dick's line, about, you know, there's just one thing I don't yeah. understand. Every motherfucking word you're saying. Yes, yes. <laughs> Such a great line. Yeah. And Bill Duke is just so classic. That that monologue, um, they talk about that it was written down to the syllable. Like, none of that is improvised. Oh, really? It's all just like... Yeah, you can been, feel it. ...been worked over. And um, yeah, Terrence Stamp just... It's it's really interesting because I think there's there's a kind of a theme running throughout the film, the idea of like performance. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that 
Luis Guzman meets uh, Terrence Stamp's daughter in an acting class, mm-hmm. that Leslie Ann Warren has this kind of like presence in the film world. Yeah. Um, that, you know, Nikki Cat is on set and so on. So, there's there's so this good. idea that like, yeah, everybody's kind of playing their part and kind of going through the motions in a way. And when Terrence Stamp walks into the scene with Bill Duke, uh-huh. it's like his monologue. It's his time to be like, have yeah. a spotlight on him and uh-huh. really perform and like, <laughs> you know, use use all the Cockney rhyming slang. Oh, and, it's so good. And just, um, yeah, really, really lay it out there for this guy. And of course, he's he's also functionally within the story. He's trying to make it very clear that whatever your beef is with Valentine, yeah. I'm, I've, I've got my own thing, uh-huh. and I have nothing to do with whatever it is you're doing. And he's allowed to do that. Yeah. Like, uh, that never comes back around. Yeah. Like, they save him in yeah. the parking garage. Yeah. And then bring him in, and that's they don't even They don't even arrest the hitmen, because they're, they're there trying to kill, you know, Terrence Stamp. And and that's, that's right. when the the kind of the DEA whatever like comes in and kind of breaks it up. Yeah, they beat the but, guys down, but let them go. But they I just guess. let those guys go because they're not really supposed to be there. You know, you right. kind of get like they're they're also like off the grid a little bit in how they're yeah. dealing with all these drug cases that they just seize the drugs and burn them. And yeah, you know, they're they're not really doing things by the book. I wonder if they uh, figured in more in previous versions or possibly. Yeah, it just seems. I mean, it all works, but it just seems odd that they were – that they pop up and then they're just sort of gone. Kind of like a red herring in a way because it – as I was watching it this time, I was kind of like when it cut to Nikki Cat and Joe D'Alessandro like playing pool again, I was like, oh, I guess they got out of jail or no, they were never arrested, you know? (laughs) They were basically just like, you know, they were tackled and put to the ground, but then it was like, all right, you guys, you know, go go away. Yeah, Yeah. and and so everyone's like making their way to Big Sur – and um, again, Nikki Cat could have gone away, but they introduced Pops back up for a minute. That yeah. third element where they're like, you know, there's there's probably a bag of money somewhere, right? Like, right. Let's go get it. Yeah, yeah. They're they're just like they're they're uninvited to this like shootout, you yeah. know. And they complicate things and don't, um, yeah, and don't stick around very long either. Yeah, don't stick around. They're very quickly dispatched and and. Um, yeah, it's it, it it is interesting that they kind of they show up uninvited and uh it doesn't doesn't end well for them. Well, yeah, I mean, let's, you know, that's where we are. Let's talk about it. That night um where it all goes down. Yeah. Uh, the end of the film is is so again sort of sloppy and it's not slick and uh there are like stunt people involved anytime you do stuff like that, but you never feel that way. No, it no. Never it never feels super planned out. And it doesn't feel like a movie shootout, you know. No. It feels very like sloppy and chaotic and and real and the way that they're kind of making poor decisions to kind of run out you know like they they they're they're hiding behind that that counter in the kitchen mm-hmm. and then they just kind of get tired and they're like screw this I'm just going out there yeah and, that one guy's like fuck this yeah, yeah yeah and then just gets shot like almost right away and um yeah the, I think there's it just has it has much more of a real feel to like yeah you know most movie shootouts we're used to where everybody like takes cover takes up their position and right they're exchanging fire and it's it's much more of like a drawn out thing uh-huh. this is just kind of like the minute you're exposed like you get shot from some direction you weren't even looking at you know yeah and and you're down and you're out yeah and uh, you don't i like that earlier in the that sequence you don't see terrence stamp overtaking anyone right you see him like tying a guy up yeah but again, the stuff that happens off screen, it's just such a uh, efficient way to do shit. Yeah, as a filmmaker. Yeah, you don't have to show all that stuff. And there's this is where like 
on the commentary, there was going to be an entire scene. They filmed this with Anne Margaret playing the ex-wife I heard about of, that. Uh, Peter, of Fonda. Peter Fonda. She was going to be at this house because maybe they still shared the house somehow. Oh, okay. And Peter Fonda maybe like showed up unannounced. Like he wasn't necessarily planning on being there. It was right. like a last minute decision. And so she was going to have this like seven, eight minute monologue oh. just about what an asshole he was and how he took everything good about the 60s and ruined it. Wow. And, um, you know, it was it was going to be like the major like statement of the film. Mm-hmm. And um, and so they, they shot it. Um, so Soderbergh had said to Dobbs, you know, nobody really has like a big network speech in movies anymore. Mm-hmm. Like a Patty Chayefsky, like just, you know, a yeah. mad as hell kind of speech. And so he's like, wouldn't it be interesting if we had that, you know? And so they shot it, they did it, and when I'd like they, to see that. At I least. know I would. I would love to see that. And uh, when they when they cut it all together, Soderbergh just said that it just ground the movie to a halt for like seven eight minutes. Yeah, and it was all shot kind of in one in one take. There was no way to sure. abridge it, cut around it, or anything. So it was kind of an all or nothing thing. And yeah. he's like, I think it just Had has to go. to go. You know, cut Anne, Mar- Anne Margaret from your movie. Yeah, That's yeah. So, and uh, you know, Lim Dobbs is like, I still miss it to this day. And you know, I think. Yeah, but you know what? It's kind of there anyway. Like he, right. you, you get the exactly. feeling he did ruin the '60s. That's that's Soderbergh's point. Is like, there's nothing that she is. We've already gotten the message yeah. that this is who this guy is, and so there's really no need to like pause the movie for eight minutes and hammer that in even harder. Yeah, because we've already understood all that, and we've understood it. In maybe 30 seconds or mm-hmm. a minute of screen time versus like eight minutes, like a showstopper kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think for a filmmaker more than almost any other quality for me, restraint is the thing I admire most. Restraint and and also being willing to cut material that yeah. you might like a lot. Right. But, but to have that – to have that sense that it's the only thing that matters is the film that people see. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if, you know, you spent two days blocking this amazing single right. take shot and yeah. all the fancy camera work and lighting you had to do to get there to that moment. Um, if ultimately the end result, as impressive as it might be, is not like working for the film, mm-hmm. then you got to get rid of it. Yeah. You know, it's just as simple as that. And there's certainly a lot of filmmakers that would still give themselves that indulgence and just leave it in there because. Yeah they think about the crew and the time spent on set and all that. Right. Maybe the the money that was spent in the budget, et cetera. But yeah. I mean, it's just that final picture that, that matters. And there's an exchange that Soderbergh and, and Dobbs have on the commentary where um, Dobbs, you know, says, you know, objectively as a viewer mm-hmm. who knows nothing about this film, who didn't write the screenplay, who's just coming in completely blind. Mm-hmm. I would say this is a good film. I would, you know, happily recommend it to my friends. I think it's a good film. Yeah. As a screenwriter, I have all these issues with it, you know? Right. And Soderbergh is like, yeah, but the only thing that matters is the first thing you said. Yeah. Who gives a shit about the screenwriter? That's one person. I know. And I got to think about the rest of the entire world who might see this movie, who are just filmgoers. And um, yeah, he just- I got to listen to that. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) It's really great. Well, it's interesting when you're talking about a filmmaker losing a scene whole cloth that they shot and loved and like how hard that is. I think the reason that's so hard, not because of how much time they took and all this stuff, that probably factors in, but it's an admission of being wrong. Sure, sure. And like, I was wrong. We did not need this stuff. We went off on And we on spent a, a week doing yeah, it and like, yeah. I was wrong. We went off on this kind of wild goose chase. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's and, hard to do, I think, as an artist. Sure. There aren't many mediums, art art mediums like film, where there are so many ways you can reconstruct something. Yeah and find fault in what you've done, yet still put out, like, a great thing in the end. 
yeah, film is such a such a complicated medium too because it's a medium where, like for instance, like in a novel, if you had written an extra hundred pages and you just decided to cut it, well, you didn't really waste a ton of money on it. Yeah, you know, you didn't involve a whole lot of other people. You just sat there, you know, for a few days and 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 wrote it all out. Maybe it took I'm a lot sure of that effort happens, from you, but I don't think about it happening in novels. Right, right. But um, but in film, it's kind of like, man, yeah, like. We brought in this whole other person, yeah. Anne Margaret, who's like a film icon in her own right. Well, and again and with the interesting casting, that's, yeah, that really jibes to like the movie. resurrect, you know, again uh-huh. this this figure from film history, and so it ties in thematically to the rest of the film. And it is kind of like, ooh, like that's a tough phone call to have to make to yeah. say, hey, look, it was nothing wrong with your performance. You did a great job. Yeah. You know, the the scene on its own is is great, but. Yeah. Just for the film that I'm making, it's not right, so I have to cut it. But it's nothing personal. It's nothing flawed in your work. It's my fault, you know, oh, yeah. for just thinking we needed it and then changing my mind or whatever. But I mean, Terry Malick cut uh, oh yeah half of uh, Adrian Brody. Yeah, I mean, yeah. completely cut him yeah. out, but a lot of other stuff too. Oh, out tons. Of, uh, Thin Red Line. He was in. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking of um, his most recent film. I think in in Song to Song, um, Char- uh, not Charlie Sheen, uh, Martin Sheen had had a role in that film and it's kind of like hey it's the reunion of malik and martin sheen and they made badlands all these years ago and now he's in this new film and and cut him out just cut him out (laughs) (laughs) no love lost yeah i can't wait to see that new movie by the way oh radigund or uh a A hidden life it's called yeah that you didn't get to see that one yet did you no it didn't it didn't play but um as soon as it as soon as there's a way for me to see it here i will i will be there all right so they have the big shootout um I did see – I'm sure you heard this on the commentary track, but I did read one part where Dobbs said that there was a specific line where um, Bill actually lets uh, Stamp go and decides not to shoot him. Right. Um, because he felt like he had been abandoned by Peter Fonda. Yeah. Whereas in the movie, it's just sort of played like he just dies and can't muster the strength to pull the trigger. Right. Right. But that's a really interesting change. It's like, yeah, I, I think he's um, he's almost deciding, like, as he lays there dying, mm-hmm. that he thinks, you know what? Why am I protecting this guy? Yeah. You know, why am I um, why am I sacrificing my own life to, to prop up this jerk who who would hide behind me? He would hide behind me. He would throw me bo- to the wolves to yep. save himself in a, in a split second without any regret. You yeah. know? So it's kind of like, no, why would I stop you from from killing him? You know, go do it. What happens to the girl? She just kind of disappears. Yeah. I think she's still she's still behind the counter me. in the kitchen. You okay. Know? Yeah. Yeah. It just occurred to me that we don't really see. Because she doesn't run out when when like Valentine runs out. Right. He he abandons her too and just runs out and, you know, runs down onto the beach. Yeah. That's but such I think a... she I think she just kind of stays, you know, just uh, hunkers down in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, well, that end sequence is beautiful. You know, he goes down to the beach and it's just that blue moonlight, really gorgeous, that rocky seashore. Yeah. And he, that fucking Ooh, compound fracture. Visceral. Like bone poking Ooh, through the ankle. Painful. Yeah, yeah. And that scene, like we were talking about earlier, um, I always liked that scene, but it really, really got to me yeah. when I watched it this morning. Yeah, just the even even Peter Fonda's performance, like the, yeah. the emotion in his in his voice and the it's like he didn't mean to kill the her. Genuine regret. That's like one of the genuine regrets of his life because yeah. you get the feeling that he maybe did really have like true feelings for yeah uh, Terrence Stamp's daughter. He you know even um, I think it's uh, his uh, his security consultant who says like, well, she got to you, you know, yeah, like. Um, 
because they're talking about, you know, these guys in the warehouse that died, there's no way anybody can connect them to you. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, Jenny could have connected them to me. He's like, right. well, she could because she'd already gotten to you. Right. right. You know, that's and that's why it's sort of implied that's why she had to go because yeah. she got too close. And th- your whole way of operating is never letting anyone get in there, never letting anyone get too close to you. Yeah. And so I think there's even there's even a subtle suggestion that maybe Adhara and Jenny – look like favor each other a little bit yeah. and that he's sort of, he has a type and that he's kind of trying to replace in a way trying to replace her. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's another uh, argument going back earlier in the film that, that Dobbs and Soderbergh have when Dave takes the, the picture mm-hmm. of Ginny oh, yeah, from, from the house uh-huh. and she's in that frame at the top of the stairs. Uh-huh. Dobbs is sort of like, really would his, his true love that he, that he killed, you know, and had to cover it up and so on. Would he really have a picture of uh, her at the top of the stairs every time he walks up the stairs and has to confront that bit about himself in the past and so on? Yeah, it is a little out of character. Like, he would almost want to act like she never existed. Yeah, either either just, like, never acknowledge her or, yeah. you know, I think in, in Dobbs' mind he says, you know, it would be more like she was one picture among many in a hallway that right. Terrence Stamp would kind of walk past and do a double take and be like, oh, that's Jenny, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah, he has more of a... It's like an altar almost, you know, you, yeah. you you come to the top of the stairs and like it's right there and there's no escaping it. And so, yeah, that's that's another another example of like, as Dobbs puts it, he's like, there's there's how I wrote it and how I pictured it in my mind. Mm-hmm. And then there's like the real life constraints of the location right. and what the production designer might have done yeah. or what the director wanted and so on. So there's there's like a real, you know, game of telephone that happens with, yeah. with a screenplay making it to film. And even if you kind of feel like you're directing a scene to the letter, uh-huh. there's so much that still changes because oh, yeah. as as Fritz Lang says in Contempt, you know, in the screenplay, it's words on paper. Mm-hmm. And in a film, it's images on a screen. Yeah. So there's always a translation. There's always um, um, an adaptation happening there. And there's there's no way to guarantee that even if you direct something just word for word, right. that it will resemble what somebody had in their mind when they wrote it. Yeah, it's the same with a, reading a book that later gets made into a film. Totally. It never almost never looks like what you picture. Um, there are certain exceptions, of course, like uh, No Country for Old Men stands yeah. out to me as yeah, it's a like movie a perfect that's kind like of realization of, perfect yeah. realization of a book. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, you know, the, the ending of this movie, it's it's really hit me more than ever about the father confronting the surrogate father yeah. about the daughter they slash lover in Fonda's case that they both lost. Right. And they, um, I feel like they almost connect there. Yeah, they do. They uh, realize they have more in common yeah. in a way that Terrence Stamp just realizes I can't, I can't judge you too harshly. Like this, this won't bring, this won't undo my failing. Yeah, me killing yeah. you, and it would be dishonest. It would be, it just wouldn't be right. You know, he has a, he has like an innate sense of right and wrong. I think, mm-hmm. and, and of justice and so on. And he realizes that he would be a hypocrite. It would be unjust for him to enact this vengeance when he bears just as much of the responsibility. Really, after he's killed, one, two, three, four, yeah, five, uh, five, people. Um, and then however many he kills that night. It's, Probably getting up close to like Six eight or, or nine. Seven, eight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I'm not. I can't remember whose bullet was responsible right, for you exactly. Right, right, but right. yeah, he just lays waste to everyone and then lets him go. Gets to the very top and he's just kind of like, you know what? You know, it's like it's like somebody says uh, early in the film. Maybe it's maybe it's Guzman. Or, I forget who says it, but 
it's like you think a guy like Terry Valentine is ever going to understand. Yeah. You, know, you think you think he's ever going to really get it in his head that yeah. he's the villain, he's the bad guy. Yep. When he's just kind of oblivious and he lives this. He's untouchable. This this bubble existence where, yep. you know, the truth is not allowed to really yeah. penetrate that, that, that bubble he has around him. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we don't see what happens to him. I imagine he dusts himself off and mm-hmm. goes right back to sure. cleaning his teeth in the mirror exactly. a week later. Yeah. Um, scarred, but not probably changed. No. You know, he's still got his young girl. Yep. Although she may bolt after this. She, yeah, she might say, <laughs> okay, that's enough. But yeah. um, we see Terry Stamp, though, on the, on the plane in that great last scene uh, with that woman in that exchange. Yeah. Uh, and that's where he really brings it home of just like about how, how bad he wants to get back to England. And he kind of, he doesn't say literally that he's been in jail. He says he's been like away on an oil rig or something yeah, in the ocean. Yeah, an oil rig in the North Sea. Yeah, yeah. And he said, I did my time, my nine years. He, and then my contract was up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's maybe a, a remnant of this whole idea that, you know, Wilson is like a worker and, and right. he has his sort of bosses and so on that he's that he's responsible to as well. Yeah. That he has to do his time, his contract and yeah. so on. Um, and he's gonna he's getting away with this because Peter Fonda, what he can't do right. is call the cops yep. still. Yep. I guess he has to bury <laughs> fucking some, five guys. Yeah, I don't know how he would have cleaned that up, but obviously he could have called made made some calls and gotten some fixers. Sure. And, There's a new fixer. Yeah. Yep. Just around the corner. Exactly. Waiting. Yeah. Uh and then that final bit from Poor Cow with him singing the Donovan song. Mm. Just such a perfect way to end this movie. Perfect I know. way to end it. And it's funny when I when I was watching it this most recent time, um, and he's, you know, he's playing that song, the Donovan song, and um, and he gets to the end of it, and uh, you know, the the woman says, "Oh, that was very good." Yeah. And he's like, "Yeah, I'm getting better, aren't I?" Yeah. And um, there's just so something, something so bittersweet about it. Yeah. The way, just the the disconnection between then and now, uh-huh. and everything that's happened in the years in between, and all the regrets and so on. Yeah. And just the memory of having been someone young, someone more full of hope, mm-hmm. like. Life still in front of you, and so on, and could have um, could have made better decisions at, yeah, from that point, right? Right, of being petty jewel, and, yeah, thief or whatever, and he like was. being able to put yourself back in that place so um, so fully, yeah, and to remember that that particular moment in your life, mm-hmm. and to say back then it was all still in front of me, it was all still possible to mm-hmm. to do better. Dobbs on the commentary talks about he says, you know, I think memory memory is really like a form of regret. It's when we remember something. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not so much the event itself that we're remembering so much as it is we're remembering like a a, a fork in the path mm-hmm. where a decision was made, a choice was made, and we're thinking as much about what could have happened instead as we are what did happen ultimately. Yeah. And that, yeah, memory is this very tricky thing. It's like they say when you remember something, what you're really remembering is the last time you remembered it. Right. And, and the way that our memories – over over time, over the years, as our perspective changes, mm-hmm. as, as we change as people, that gives a different, you know, emphasis and color it's to our memory. It's a game of telephone with yourself Exactly, almost. exactly. And so what really is memory and what really yeah. is, you know, how can we say with any um, certainty that what we remember is the way things happened? You know, we can't. Yeah. And that great line early on um, when she says, do you remember the last time you saw Jenny? And he says, I remember every time I yeah, saw her. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know— in a way, I mean, he's saying a couple of things there. He's saying that 
he loved her that much mm-hmm. that it made that much of an impression on him, but also yeah. it was in installments. So it's right. like, I remember the time I saw her when she was five. I remember yeah. the time she was 15, you know. Um, I remember every time I saw her because it was 12 times. There are these snapshots, and yeah. each one was very self-contained and, and well-defined because yeah. years went by between those times. And yeah. Yeah, just all the the regrets of uh, of a father as he looks back on yeah. his life and not being there for his child. You know, it's a hard, hard thing. And All wrapped up in this like kind of bloody revenge, re- story. revenge story. I know, I know. So good. Yeah. Man, what a great film. Beautiful piece of work. Yeah. Uh, you got anything else? Not really, no. I mean, I, I was going to talk a little more about, you know, some of the influences coming into this film. Soderbergh uh, wrote a very interesting book in the 90s called Getting Away With It, mm-hmm. which is sort of like a book-length interview with another filmmaker, Richard Lester, yeah. who made a film called Pachulia that mm-hmm. was very, very influential on uh, on this film in terms of the fragmented uh, fragmented nature of the cutting and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, the cinematographer on that film is Nicholas Rogue, who of course went on to make oh, sure. Don't Look Now, yeah. and is also extremely associated with this kind of, many of his films have this kind of jarring editing structure uh-huh. where time is broken up and, and happening parallel to itself and so on. Um, there's also the films of, of Alan René, uh-huh. um, French filmmaker Soderbergh described this film as sort of Git Carter as made by Alan René. Yeah, who made, definitely evokes Git Carter. Yeah, who made such films as, you know, Last Year at Marienbad, uh, Hiroshima Mon Amour, and then my favorite of his is called Muriel, or uh-huh. The Time of Return, where Muriel is very interesting because when we were talking earlier about how this film is very simple in terms of the plot, mm-hmm. and that's why it's, you know, why it works because you have this simple backbone that you can deviate from with mm-hmm. the memories and so on. Um, Muriel is like a very complicated plot and it's more fragmented even than this film. Yeah. And when you watch it, it, it almost, there are sequences that are cut so quickly with these flashes of images that it almost doesn't make sense. Yeah. And it came out in 1963 and, and a lot of people felt like Rene, who had made Marion Bod and uh, Hiroshima Monomore before this, they sort of felt like, okay, you pushed it too far this time. This mm-hmm. is like too fragmented, too, um, just too abstract. But I, I think it's a really beautiful film. You can you can get it now on uh, like a Criterion Blu-ray, and definitely if you're if you're interested in, you know, a film that that pushes to the absolute limit this idea of showing a character thinking. Um, examining this theme of memory and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard hard to do better than that film. So I would encourage anybody to, to check that out. And then also in terms of the the kind of single-minded protagonist that mm-hmm. is just out for revenge, there's a John Borman film, Point Blank, oh, yeah. that also comes up quite a bit yeah, I know when, this one. when they talk about it and uh, Lee Marvin, yeah. you know, and, the, and this, he, he has that same kind of like single-minded sure. determinedness through that film that you know, he's he's no nonsense. He's just there to yeah. enact his revenge and, yeah, and then yeah. just kind of like you almost get the sense that he could just like vanish into thin air afterwards. Yeah. Like this his whole reason for existence is to enact this revenge. Yeah, that's a that's a good wreck. Yeah. Um I got one final thought because I forgot to mention when I was talking about Sarah Flack editing these films, uh her first film credit, she was a PA on Sex Lies and Videotape. Wow. And then later went on to be his editor. How cool is that? That's really cool. And that really speaks to Soderbergh's, um, you know, to, to do that, to promote someone up like that. Absolutely. You know? Soderbergh has, because um, he, he as an editor himself, because he edits a lot of his own films now. Yeah, sure. And I think he's kind of, he's definitely taken up, you know, what, what Sarah Flack did in this film has continued to kind of be 
a reference point, I think, for him mm-hmm. in how he cuts his own material now. Um, but Soderbergh began uh, a lot of his early jobs in Hollywood when he was just trying to kind of get a foothold out there yeah. were in taking these, I think a lot of the times there was like concert films. Like mm-hmm. I think his first credit as director is this Yes concert film <laughs> from like 1985. Yeah, the 80s Yes. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And, um, but he, I think he had a, he had a deal with, Maybe one of the the premium cable stations, or forget who exactly, but they would acquire the rights to these films, these concert films from around the world that were maybe two and a half hours long, and they would say, "We need you to make like an hour long version of this." Wow! And so he said, from a very early um, point, he was taking this raw material, and and rather than just like cutting scenes out or or mm-hmm. trimming it down, he was kind of reconceiving the whole thing, yeah. like exploding it, and then kind of putting it back together. And that's something that has obviously served him very well yeah. as a filmmaker now. It's good lessons. And even even on his uh, his website, he will put up these experimental recuts of very well-known films. For instance, he has a recut of 2001. Oh, wow. I don't think you can get it anymore, but, <laughs> you know, it was it was there for a minute. Wow. And um, it's like, yeah, or he, he made a version of like Psycho, for instance, uh-huh. where he did a split screen between Hitchcock's version and the Gus Van Sant version. Mm-hmm. And sometimes... Uh, just using one or the other to kind of create this like, you know, assembly, like combination cut of Psycho. Oh, wow. So he's he's obviously somebody who is very, very interested in the idea of tinkering with things. Yeah. And of... Um, just one of the greats. Just poking around and, and yeah. you know, um, forever experimenting. So... I love yeah. it. So cool. All right, dude. Uh, we'll think offline about what we're going to do next. Yeah. Um, looking forward to whatever that is. We'll go with something... Um, Something real adventurous. Yeah. I don't know what to think about it. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you. Movie Crush is produced, edited, and engineered by Ramsey Yunt here in our home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.